0: Welcome to the Sea Press
1: Podcast, a podcast from the Presbytery of Seattle that invites you into conversations about issues and topics that are meaningful to the Church and its people.
0: Well, it's good to be with uh, everyone today, and joining me on the podcast is the Reverend Curtis Paul DeYoung, someone I have known as an academic, an intellect, very thought-provoking writer, um, and a churchman, uh, someone deeply concerned about the, the welfare of the church. And in particular, one reason that I thought it would be good to have him on with us today, um, I'm Tally Hairston, if you did not know. <laughs> and uh, one reason I thought it'd be good to have uh, Curtis on today was because of uh, the way in which his thinking about what we like to call public theology, the way in which his theology works in public. Uh, around really tough issues of equity and diversity and inclusion. You know, Reverend, go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Uh, First, let me say it's wonderful to be with you, soon to be Dr. Tally Hairston, uh, who, yes, we've known each other many years and um, co-conspired on some really interesting kinds of things around the tension between reconciliation and racial justice, other justice issues, and how important both of those are to, to our journey forward as uh, faith leaders, people of faith. So presently, I'm the CEO of the Minnesota Council of Churches. Uh, the Council of Churches in Minnesota is a uh, primarily Protestant body uh, with the mainline white Protestant churches and the peace churches like the Mennonites and the Church of the Brethren. And in the last 10 to 15 years, the, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church has joined us and the four historic African-American denominations that are in Minnesota uh, have all joined. We also have a very strong relationship with the uh, Archdiocese in the Twin Cities, Roman Catholic Church, and bishops around the state as well. Uh, We also connect to evangelicals uh, who are progressive, and then we have a a very rigorous interfaith uh, work, uh, particularly uh, partnering with Muslim and Jewish communities on social justice issues. Um, So I've been in this position uh,
0: about three years now, so it's been a good place to be. Well, thanks again for joining us. and. Uh, actually, the the way this came about was um, I was we were doing as a staff some work on equity and inclusion, and I referenced your book, uh, one that goes all the way back, I believe, one of the first ones you uh, wrote that you it was later updated, I believe, around diversity and in, in, in the script in the text, the biblical text.
1: Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. coming to the right, mm-hmm.
0: right, and so it was uh, Scott, uh, one of our co-EPs. So let's get them on a podcast and so here we are yeah mm-hmm. uh, and and then recently um there's been a lot in the news around the the african-american community and the global pandemic we're in and uh you forwarded me a, an article that you co-wrote uh i'd love for you to share just a little bit about how that came about and and how you you really you know what? What? What uh, motivated you to 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 put that in, uh, pen to paper and write that, this article?
1: Just a little bit of a backdrop uh, before uh, being the head of Minnesota Council Churches, and I've been in the Minnesota for a lot of years, but I had moved to Chicago and taken a position uh, at an organization called Community Renewal Society, which is a historic racial justice organization, also faith-based. But that was right during the time of, of Ferguson and Black Lives Matter and all the emergence of so many new young activists in the Black community and young activists around immigration issues and et cetera. And I connected with a number of those young activists to, uh, in some sense, be mentored and educated by them about the new realities and kind of the new ways of engaging. So then I moved back to Minnesota and I had missed all of that, which was happening here as well. And so I needed to meet the young activists. And one of them was uh, Leslie Redman, who is the youngest uh, woman to lead the uh, NAACP chapter in uh, Minneapolis. And uh, I found her fascinating. Um, She's also a woman of faith, comes out of the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World denomination, which is one of our denominational members. And so her bishop speaks also very highly of her, um, but she has transformed the organization into a, a much more uh, activist in the streets. Uh, young, she's a lawyer as well, so she can carry her own with the traditional NAACP legal work as well. So anyway, she's, uh, uh, she reached out to me and said, you know, we should write something together, an op-ed to the newspaper that really talks about the inequities that we are seeing in the COVID-19 realities. Uh, that there's such a gap uh, between black communities and white communities, communities of color, indigenous communities and white communities. So we, we sat down and uh, wrote uh, something that uh, you know identified the issues. Um, and then uh, made some suggestions on, on what could be done. Um, but clearly, even in a state like Minnesota that you might not think would have these kinds of gaps, uh, Minnesota has, some, has probably the most or second most gaps around achievement, around healthcare between whites and blacks. Minnesota is one of the best places to live if you're white and it's one of the worst places to live if you're black.
0: Well, the, these kind of um, inequities and structural inequities, we often refer to them as structural inequities. There are times where people look at these disparities and um, individualize them, right? That, that the right. behavior of our community, African-American community, just doesn't uh, produce the kind of meritorious outcomes that everyone else is is producing and not seeing it as structural or systemic, uh, both in your work and, and how you both wrote the, co-wrote this, but as well as how you think about structural inequities, mm-hmm. I think might be important to share.
1: As a person of faith, as a Christian, I believe that we all created in the image of God and that we're children of God. So therefore, if we all are created in the same image, but yet the statistics are telling us something different about right. how our experiences, then i need to look for a reason for that and my complete commitment to us all being created in the image of god does not allow me to take an individualistic perspective therefore i look at the structures and you know i think we all have had enough conversation, I hope, to know that we uh, exist in a nation that has a history of genocide of its indigenous people, history of enslavement of people from the continent of Africa, um, the way we've treated folks who have immigrated in more recent years from uh, c- countries where people of color are coming from. Uh, we we It's just sort of, uh, in the system. I I like this term people use now, baked in to the system. Uh, And that's what structural rights are. And sometimes you don't recognize it because it's so intrinsic to how we operate. But when you begin to step back and you say, why are people of color dying at a higher rate from COVID-19? Not just a higher rate, but a tremendously higher rate. I just think I saw in Chicago that the stats are like, blacks die three times as often as whites. Uh, and they're only they're one third of the population. And that's just across the board around the nation. So to me, that in itself speaks to that there's something in the structure uh, that affects it, and therefore to address it uh, ultimately requires a different approach. It requires an approach that looks at the structure. So right now, there's a lot of focus on immediate immediate needs, as it should be. People are being hospitalized. People are catching COVID. But what the COVID-19 reality is simply is it's exposing structural inequities that have already existed and existed for a long time. So we have to think about that when COVID ends, they're still going to be there, but we may actually have a better sense of what those realities are and hopefully some strategies to address them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think people, that's right. I think the challenge that kind of intellectually getting around structural entities or theologically getting around structural inequities or systemic failures present an opportunity to think about things like inequitable access to opportunities to begin with, right? Kind of like when you're, or, or to somewhat expand the conversation a little bit, when you, when you live in a Black body that lives as, as an, a representation of resistance, just simply going jogging, Yes. How that impacts the way my blood pressure, my the anxiety, my stress levels, just about jogging, right? Mm -hmm. That's a reference, obviously, to something that's recently, you know, hit the forefront of 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 most of our uh, news, right? It's just wow Mm -hmm. that someone can just experience that kind of tragedy as as a community, and Mm -hmm. somehow people think that there's not biological. Factors involved for community right. trauma.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to, to lay out the, the sociology of all of this. The reality is that we as white people don't have to experience microaggressions. We don't have to fear jogging now, or just sort of the public perception of we don't think that doesn't even come to our mind uh, when we're out and about. Uh, we don't consciously think of ourselves as white people. We just kind of live uh, our lives without that thought. Whereas, and I would think that women, white women should have a little bit more sensitivity to this reality because I hear white women talking about going into a parking lot at a mall and wondering if they could be under threat. Now you just magnify that feeling when you put a uh, race on this as well and culture and et cetera. But yeah, that of course is going to have health. Effects, uh, um, and that's why so many people use the language of post-traumatic stress uh, to talk about these kinds of issues. Right. And then when that's over generations, uh, and if you live in a food desert and you only have access to a certain kind of menu, and you are not able to eat healthier food, uh, that over generations, that's going to affect your body and your your just your physicality, and so. Therefore, that ties into why one of the reasons also why COVID 19 is uh, so much more devastating for Black people.
0: And I think communities of color have become aware of what uh, I think Martin Luther King, and in fact, I didn't know this in the article. It starts off with a quote from Martin Luther King, um, which he once said of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most inhumane and shocking unquote that that I didn't I've never read that quote before. Martha King. Right. I don't know if you had. Right. No,
1: I uh, my colleague found that quote, but I, you know, as a scholar, wow. I took it out and uh, <laughs> he said it. I mean, the man was a prophet. He was. A, but he was already seeing that. He was already seeing that. Um, yeah. And and today that's such a such an important almost prophetic look that he had to our time
0: yeah and 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 when we unpack the public health reality mm-hmm. with with the psychosis that oftentimes living in a racist society can create right, mm-hmm. right? I, i'm looking over my shoulder i don't i don't know i don't know if, if i should live into the stereotype or not i don't know I, I i mean i'm thinking am i if i get angry am i the angry black man i if, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if I respond about the the most recent murder of of, of brother Ahmad uh, Aubrey, am I am I being uh, um, an, an, another kind of activist and not Christian, right? right? So in trying to speak to my my white evangelical friends, like if mm-hmm. I post something and I you go through fifty thousand thoughts, yeah. right? Let alone the yeah. public health reality uh, right. that we live within, right?
1: Right. And certainly, the, uh, I think the, the economic reality also adds to all this. And let me just put this in church language, because that's the place that I live. My board is made up of, of bishops of different churches, different denominations, and presbyters, and conference ministers, and the like. So most of the bishops of the white churches are the heads of denominations. That is their full-time job as a bishop. But the Bishop of the Church of God in Christ, who also has the same responsibilities of overseeing a denomination that is in various parts of the state of Minnesota, he also, in addition to being a bishop, pastors a congregation. And before his retirement, his retirement now, but before that, he also was a pharmacist. That's like three jobs. He knew going in to ministry in Church of God in Christ, which is the largest black denomination, that he would be bivocational. That was the only way you could make ministry work and continues to be the case. I think nearly all the Church of God pastors, maybe all of them, but nearly all of them here are bivocational. And we know that ministry is not a part-time endeavor, and it's a 24-hour requirement, and yet you have another job as well. But so uh, even when we sit down at our boardroom table, The inequities are apparent. And for many African-American leaders in their communities, they're also seen as community leaders. Uh, Another expectation and another part of their work. That, again, has effects on our bodies uh, and our stress levels, uh, our lifespans, et cetera. And that's based on the economics because the people attending Church of God and Christ congregations are economically not at the same level as people uh, attending Lutheran churches, so the offerings in fact a bishop uh, Church of God and Christ bishop here uh, in one of our meetings said that for uh, every dollar that's given in a white congregation he's getting ten cents in his offering plate Wow that
0: yeah that's <laughs> wow and I am um, growing up in the black church um, one of the realities about most of the people who are um, attending are people who live within a stone's throw of an airport, right, housing, oh. housing issues, a stone's throw right. of factories, live right. down the river from a factory. And yeah. so environmental racism yeah. presents not only um, economic challenges, but health challenges that, that require, I think, how we think about structural inequities to not simply be about um, whether or not I kept my distance from six feet from the next person in my neighborhood. right? It's just not that linear.
1: No, no. And you have to think of this work around justice as multifaceted um, or intersectionals, another word that folks use. But the idea that there's, this is not simple. Uh, This takes a kind of complexity, but folks who experience it understand it. And that's who often's not at the table when we're trying to make these changes. Another thing we point out in that, uh, uh, that op-ed was that too often, uh, even when we as a society see these structural inequities, it's still mainly privileged white people at the decision-making table uh, who don't have the lived experience, they don't have the understanding, therefore they will be missing some of the core pieces of what's needed to solve this. So communities of color uh, often have many of the answers to the challenges they face. They just lack resources or they lack access to the decision-making process.
0: Well, you know, Rev, I I, I love um, some of the resources and solutions you all put together in this article. Uh, You say immediate support for families. No one should have to worry about their car getting towed or being ticketed. There should be rent forgiveness. Uh, filing unemployment should be streamlined. The private business sector and large foundations need to direct to do direct financial resourcing towards African American and religious institutions. I am on uh, a, a committee that 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 is that's questioned the county in our region, right? King County in our region, uh, and the disparities between how resources are going into. Uh, around uh, CoVID 19 are going into African American communities. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing there in Minnesota, but it looks like based on this article that you are um, so, p- kind of posing as a solution that we do some targeted funding and support to African American communities.
1: that's That's what we're asking for. and uh, there is there is some of that happening. The United Way heres, you know, had had already begun to build uh, partnerships. Particularly with black-led uh, nonprofits, um, often uh, we try to bring it into the, the pieces. Often, the faith community is uh, is forgotten in these kinds of grants and supports, um, whereas they tend to really have the heartbeat of people. But there is some of that beginning, and it needs to happen. I mean, that's that's a mechanism for survival. It's a mechanism for trusting that people know what they need. Our our other concern is, of course, that after the pandemic, the uh, the inequities are not going anywhere. They should be now much clearer for us to see. So how we begin to actually address the inequities themselves become the next part of the, and something we need to already be thinking about um, addressing. And that's why we talk about, you know, that most, at least in Minnesota, most of the, Decision-making tables around the way the structures work in our state, or uh, Twin Cities, are mostly white people making the decisions for communities of color, and yeah. that that's not going to help us moving forward.
0: No, uh, in fact, uh, that idea of uh, what happens next, right, when when this is so assuming that there's some kind of movement from to next like what, it, what right the, the new normal right? right that is some of my colleagues we've been discussing in um what that looks like in terms of empowering the public health system to mm-hmm. be more trusting in our communities right, right. Yeah. trust and i saw that also in your article that you suggest some kind of process to to alleviate the long standing mistrust towards public health
1: and public education faces a similar kind of uh, dilemma you know when everyone has been sent home to now be schooled online whereas many families of color the parents are those essential workers at uh, nursing homes or even in our commu- uh, public health system uh, are not able to be at home, as it were, homeschooling. We've become a whole country now of homeschoolers uh, for a semester uh, with the, obviously the help of teachers. But, uh, or do you have internet access readily available in your community, even if the school gives you an iPad? I mean, it's, uh, so inequities just follow and while we see this so much about race, I, I would just add that in rural communities, it's less about race. It's about economics and some of those same inequities exist there. So it benefits us all to
0: uh, decrease the gaps mm-hmm. um, in, as we move forward. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to ask you this question and uh, I'm going to answer it uh, for myself. And then I'd love for you to Conclude our time uh, with with an answer to this question, but uh, one of the the ways in which I've, as an African American man, pastor, um, preacher, who's a part of both um, the Presbyterian community and communities of color broadly, I have had to sit with um, the biblical text, right? I've had to sit with scripture around, right. and some of the things that I have been, you know, reflecting and praying about um, in the, in the, in the Bible, you know, are, are those stories where, and, and I don't want to influence your answer here, but, yeah. um, uh, but where, where the people are in despair and God allows the system or structure to fall down, mm-hmm. to simply fall down, right? That sometimes in order for us to see things new and to have a sense of restoration or renewal, that there, the, 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 the kind of day-to-day way in which we've been doing, doing things has to come to some kind of abruptness, right? Some, there has to be an interruption. Uh, right. God has to, has to interrupt. And I'm not saying God brings COVID. What I'm saying is it seems like we have these moments where when change happens, it's because we've been interrupted. Right. Right. And I, I've been thinking about that. I'm not saying I'm right about it. I'm just saying I'm thinking about it. So <laughs> but what have you been sitting with? Um,
1: interestingly, um, I have uh, been drawn to the closest we can find to a pandemic in the first century church. Uh, and when you you in Acts with the formation of the Antioch church, they reference the fact that there's a famine in Jerusalem. Barnabas and... Uh, Saul who becomes Paul, uh, lifting up an offering, raising an offering to then carry personally and give to the leadership uh, in Jerusalem, which would be Peter, James, and John, to support this um, in this moment of famine and what has struck me about this was first off, Barnabas was from Jerusalem church, and as we know in those early passages in Acts, the Jerusalem church was Uh, something that almost seems like a fantasy to us, but they shared all things in common. They had an understanding that they were one in every way. I think Barnabas brought that to Antioch, which is now a uh, multi-ethnic, we could use the language of multi-racial church with uh, Jews who have struggled with serious uh, issues of oppression and injustice in the Roman Empire and then Greeks and Romans who have been beneficiaries. And he's saying, Jerusalem is struggling, but they're us. We need to share with them. Um, and they take that offering. Now, there's another offering that Paul talks about in the Corinthian correspondence, he mentions that, I believe, also in Romans, and he's, where he's traveling to different churches now, raising money again for Jerusalem. But this is actually a different offering, and it's not based on a famine. And he's... Uh, It's over a period of time. It isn't like, just like, it's not uh, set based on a short-term crisis. Mm -hmm. And he's raising that again to bring to Jerusalem. So what he's trying to do is build into the system of the early church, a theology of oneness. We are one. We are in this together. And the folks in Jerusalem are just economically not where we are. And then he says, uh, but... He says, this is just uh, like an honest and equal exchange because your faith came from Jerusalem. You are only a Christian because of the folks in Jerusalem. Jesus and the early church went to the Jews first, and then the Jews went to the Gentiles, the Romans, and the Greeks. And I'm going, wow, built into the early church system, the first century church at least, was this idea of oneness that even included economic oneness. Mm. Uh, If we could move to something like that today, Mm. which uh, begins with building actually authentic relationships, because I think a lot of times white churches, white uh, leadership really don't understand what's happening in black churches, black communities, Latino churches, indigenous churches, other churches of color. They just don't understand. They understand it from a distance. If you built that kind of relationship, then you have to you you have to live in that oneness. But what I found most amazing about that text was yes, they did famine and relief, but then he built it into the system of all the churches he was founding, uh, that there was an economic uh reconciliation partnership with folks in Jerusalem who were still
0: struggling. Wow, well I could, I could, I could listen to you talk that that text all day long. Um, but I think you your um, insight into that is very provocative for those who, who might, um, you know, see a very individualized faith as sure. the kind of true uh, discipleship, true faith, right? Is, is mm-hmm. uh, me and Jesus and we're good, right, right? And, and that kind of collective understanding of both my existence in the church, but also my collective understanding about my faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that that I'm I'm the beneficiary of someone else's witness, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah right, yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Reverend uh, Curtis uh-huh. the Young. It's good to be with you again. Uh, hopefully, we get a chance to see each other sometime soon and connect up again. And uh, I hope so. Once uh, people are flying again. <laughs> yes. And
1: blessings on your work with the Seattle Presbytery and the churches that you connect with. Um, My prayers are with you today. God bless you, brother. Take care.